Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court lets stand a Texas law that effectively outlaws all abortion. But it's not the last word on the issue. Conservative states that have banned mask mandates in schools could soon be the subject of a discrimination lawsuit. And the feds are investigating the McFlurry. But first, the race for Seattle mayor. Bruce Harrell, who is one of the two candidates who moved on from the primary election and into the general, has adopted Compassion Seattle as part of his platform. For those who don't know, it would mandate the city build at least 2,000 units of affordable and supportive housing and keep the streets clear of homeless encampments. Joining me now is Como's Matt Markovich, and uh, this is something that uh, Harold has been pushing for some time. He was a big supporter of Compassion Seattle. Yeah, and made no bones about it, and his opponent, Lorena Gonzalez, has said she was against it. So it's a very clear dividing line on the Compassion Seattle initiative. Uh, Harold has always supported the idea of having some sort of um, way, method to have parks sidewalks, city-owned land to be cleared of camps. And, you know, Compassion Seattle basically said that if there is no remedy for people who aren't, when they choose not to go into some sort of uh, temporary housing, that in the charter, it would be the city's responsibility to possibly, they could remove them uh, from these camps uh, that are on city property. But then again, as we're all aware, you can't camp on city property anyway. Well, and that was one of the things that was brought up during that press conference that Bruce Harrell had called. The laws are already on the books to keep these encampments off the streets and out of parks. They're just not being enforced. So what would any new initiative or policy from the mayor change? It, well, it's it's all about uh, reality on the ground. You know, there's a the whole idea about what is compassionate, whether to leave people in place that where they like in a tent or an RV on a city park. Is that compassion because we're allowing them to stay when they have no other place to go? And the city's has this a moral obligation, it appears, that they have to find people a place to go uh, before they're removed from a particular park. And that and that's kind of what Bruce Harrell has been talking about uh, the whole time here. And that's what he did at his event at Green Lake, which he, by the way, picked again another encampment that was nearby to use as a backdrop for his uh, announcing his plan on how to hand to solve the homelessness crisis in Seattle. Referring to his previous uh, press conference that he held at Broadview Thompson School, where there was the big encampment nearby. And what's the latest there? Has that one been cleared out? Because I know he made a big deal about that. That has not been cleared out. It's actually been growing in size. Although this, the, the, there is some now cooperation, we're learning, from the assistant superintendent of Seattle Public Schools between the school district and the city of Seattle with outreach workers going into that camp with the help of the city of Seattle. Now, before, we, we heard many, many times, uh, Mayor Durkin said, this is a school district problem. They need to step up and deal with this camp. But behind the scenes, there is some cooperation now with that camp. Uh, so it still exists. There's a fence around it. Uh, it has not been removed. It's a fairly large camp, and now school's underway, and the school district had said that the camp would be removed by by uh, by school time, and that's clearly not the case. Well, in that press conference that you and I were at a couple of weeks ago, we, we kind of scratched our heads because Bruce Harrell called this press conference with, you know, hey, I want to be mayor, and there's all these camps in the background. Not the greatest backdrop, not the greatest image that you're trying to portray, but in this past week's press conference, I think 
he kind of had a bit of a gaffe as well. I'm going to play some audio for you, and, and I want to get your take on it. Uh, first, he was talking about where he's going to build this affordable housing or this emergency and supportive housing for those that are experiencing homelessness. A few years ago, I was talking to uh, Patty Murray, and I said, you know, I don't hear a lot of talk at the federal government about our local issue of homelessness and what we could do. And she responded by saying, well, you know, we don't have the resources for that. It's sort of a local issue. And I says, but you have the land. And then Harold went on to say... What you're going to see under my administration is working with the county, working with the port, working with the city, looking at where we have abundance lands, working with faith-based communities, working outside of the city. You're going to see us identify that land. Now, I'm not sure this was a wise move on his part. Some of the worst tragedies in human history have been the result of the forcible relocation of a population to satisfy the needs or desires of a larger one. Perhaps it's a bit of a strained metaphor, but we are talking about the government isolating a piece of land and moving a group of people that many see as undesirable to where they are out of sight and out of mind. Well, they're planning that right now. I mean, you just look at the both the county and the city are planning to create safe lots, which was a disaster under the Murray administration several years ago. But they're set aside money both on the county and city level to create an area that uh, has not been located yet. Uh, to do exactly what you're just talking about, to put some people in a spot where other people do not want them because they don't want them on the streets in front of these residential neighborhoods, but put them in a place where there is some security that they won't be towed. Uh, There could be caseworkers there, and that's the whole idea. But uh, I think that's happening right now. I mean, that's you have tiny house villages where people are being relocated to, where they can live temporarily. Um, The... That I think what you what you just brought up is actually happening. Whether it's the land, whether the federal government should give the land up or the county should give the land up, I think there's an active. There's, I know that there's uh, both the county and the city are looking for parcels to create some form of low income housing or temporary shelter housing. Uh, they've been obviously you know they've been buying the hotels. Uh, they're supposed to be creating more tiny house villages. But then again, when all this is all said and done, the Regional Homeless Authority next year, when they start taking over all these contracts for things like tiny house villages, um, the, the director there is not really an, a fan of tiny house villages. But clearly this is a NIMBY issue, not in my backyard, which is something that all city leaders have to deal with at some level or another, whether it is to do with a homeless encampment or a landfill or anything else that is required by municipal governments. So the question becomes, where do you put it? What do you do? Because someone somewhere is going to be unsatisfied. That's just the nature of the game. I mean, that's that's going back decades and <laughs> centuries, the whole NIMBY idea. We like we want to support one thing, but don't put it in my backyard. I mean, that's just it comes with the territory on, on this on this topic, especially. Um, and again, I think Harold, in his quest to find land, he says he's aware of certain pieces of property uh, that when I heard him, when I talked to him after that presser. You know, he's aware of the certain pieces of property and he says it's available. You know, I even asked him, you know, um, at, at, he had said that people can be removed from it and camp after their first uh, offered housing. And then I asked him, well, what what do you do when there's no housing? There's no temporary housing. And then he was very emphatic saying, oh, there is. We, we'll have it happen. You know, uh, in his first uh, six months, he's going to create a thousand uh, units of temporary housing. And then the next six months, another thousand. And, he, you know, it's just a hyperbole right now. He has no plan and who, who, how it's going to be funded. 
But that's what he said. And he's very adamant that it's possible to do that with the resources we have right now. That's what he told me. But again, you know, we come back to this idea of forcibly removing people from one location and putting them in another in a designated area that the government has set up. This sounds eerily familiar. Yeah, I know. I I know where you're going on this one. And I don't want to say those what what, what you're you're actually talking about, because I think personally, I think it's a little bit of a stretch. Okay, Um, but they're trying to find places to have some form of temporary housing and shelter. And I think I think in general, uh, just in my reporting for the last couple of years and what people talk about, I think the general public is in support of having certain spots, you know, temporary housing. It's again, it's a NIMBY thing. They're supportive of having it. It's a question once you establish like a tiny house village or a safe RV lot, uh, is it a free for all there? You know, can can people be lawless in that area? And that's what the neighbors are upset. And that's what they fear with the community that that would move in there because it's typically low barrier. Uh, People have substance abuse issues. And and when I say low barrier, meaning that they'll be allowed to use drugs uh, at these you know, city funded or county funded uh, facilities. And that's what the neighbors are upset. You know, they don't want that. They don't want the lawlessness. They don't want crime to come into their neighborhood. Uh, they don't want people who are stoned out of their mind walking down the street and they're coming from a tiny house village. There. I mean, that's what their fear is. But they're, they're supportive of having some form of housing for people. So, you know, like we said, it's the, it's this NIMBY effect. Where do you put it? What do you do? Someone is ultimately going to be unsatisfied. But at the same time, services are are needed as well. It's not just the location. Is the city trying to stand up services to help those that have substance abuse problems, have mental health problems? Because for the longest time, there wasn't that backdrop. There wasn't that safety net. Yes. And and that's real expensive. I mean, that's that's known as the term wraparound services. If you hear that in news reports or how politicians say that, you know, they want to have housing with wraparound services. And that's those wraparound services are very expensive and uh, very time consuming. And a lot of one on one work that needs to be done with the this affected population primarily, you know, the chronically homeless, the chronically homeless is someone who's been, you know, out on the street for more than a year uh, with no stable housing. And, you know, these people usually have something else going on in their life uh, and you need these wraparound services to take. And that's very expensive. You know, so right now we're focused on housing, just getting the city and the county's focus on just housing. Those wraparound services are are there, but not at the scale that's needed for the population that we have here on the street. So as we wrap up this segment, Bruce Harrell obviously adopting Compassion Seattle. Lorena Gonzalez was opposed to Compassion Seattle. Probably the clearest line between the two candidates thus far. Who benefits? Well, that's that's how you feel about what the city wants to do. I mean, the whole idea behind Compassion Seattle was to compel city leaders, the city council and the mayor to do X, Y, Z, like you said, that that they would generate 2000 units of housing that you can remove camps uh, that are in uh, posing a safety hazard. And, and, and there's less debate about removing a camp. That's what a lot of people were in favor of. You just, just can't allow people to stay put forever. Um, so that framework uh, set the groundwork for this. Um, whether or not whether or not it's a dividing line between the two council members, uh, the two former council presidents, uh, I think it's a contributing factor. But I think it's a lot more about past history, especially with Lorraine Gonzalez 
and her votes with defunding SBD and her last couple of years on the council. You know, Bruce Harrell was able to stay on the sidelines during all that and had no other critical votes that, she, that he had to make because he wasn't on the council anymore. Uh, so people are going to go back into his record and he didn't have the same conflicts other than they did have homelessness going on at the time when he was on the council uh, and the few days that he was mayor. Um, but that I think going back, it's their previous records that's really going to divide them. The compassion Seattle divide uh, their opinions on that is a contributing factor, but I don't think it's the factor that will divide uh, decide who's going to be mayor. All right, come on, Matt Markovich. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Jeff. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, some bad polling numbers for the president. We'll dive into the details with a polling experts when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Poge. A new poll out this week from ABC News and the Washington Post. Americans overwhelmingly support President Biden's decision to end the war in Afghanistan, but by a two-to-one margin, they disapprove about how he handled the chaotic and ultimately deadly withdrawal that included the evacuation of several thousand U.S. citizens and tens of thousands of Afghans. Joining us now is polling director Scott Clement with The Washington Post. And uh, what are some of the top line numbers here? What are the most shocking things you found? The biggest thing is that Afghanistan, and what we saw, of course, was a, a very chaotic pullout, a lot of surprising overtaking uh, uh, by the Taliban. Uh, but what the poll shows is that Americans are really of two minds on Afghanistan. They they have they had soured on the war uh, many years ago, and so on the one front they're very supportive of the withdrawal broadly. Uh, they didn't want to keep forces there, but uh, they're highly critical of uh, Biden's handling of the withdrawal. And in fact, it is clearly his worst issue so far as president. Uh, Americans disapprove of his handling of the issue by two to one, as you mentioned, uh, and his approval rating, his overall job rating, has declined by six points uh, since late June. So uh, Biden is paying a serious political price uh, for uh, what's happened in Afghanistan. And if I'm not mistaken, depending on the poll, whether it's ABC News, Washington Post or some of the others, Biden is now roughly even on his approval numbers, if not a little underwater. Is that not correct? Right. Our, our poll finds him at 44 percent approval and 51 percent disapproval. So he's seven points underwater in our poll. Uh, we saw another poll from Marist College show pretty similar results yesterday. Um, you know, it's good to look across multiple see where Biden is. But just in our own survey in June, he was at 50 percent approval and 42 percent disapproval. So he had been maintaining this sort of narrow positive ratings. Uh, That is gone. Isn't that, though, kind of typical for a new president? There is that honeymoon period when they're first sworn into office and then towards the summer, maybe into the fall, some issues hit and that honeymoon period wears off. That's generally true. And Donald Trump received very little honeymoon as president. Biden had a bit more of a honeymoon as president than Trump did. Uh, He came into office with some pretty positive ratings of his transition. Um, Still, Biden's honeymoon is ending quicker than previous presidents. Uh, Bill Clinton is the other uh, president who had a pretty quick end to that and was underwater uh, pretty soon after being elected, uh, after entering office. But um, uh, Presidents uh, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama all 
saw negative numbers come in their second year in office or later. Getting back to Afghanistan in the poll, we're looking at that just 8% say the decision to leave makes the United States safer from terrorism. Whether or not a voter feels safe is a pretty good indication of whether they're going to vote for an incumbent or a challenger, isn't it? It's important to track that kind of uh, element. And one of the numbers I look at is the share who say it makes the country less safe. 44% say that. So that is a kind of criticism that Biden might face, uh, and certainly Democrats might face in the upcoming midterm elections. So you still have about half who say it makes no difference or uh, that uh, the the withdrawal makes the U.S. safer. As you point out, the the safer element is very, very few people think that. Uh, So that's not uh, much of something to an argument to stand on for Biden or Democrats. Now, Republicans, though, elected officials, others have also said the United States should not accept refugees. And I'm not saying the Republican Party as a whole, but some. But overall, Americans like the idea of resettlement efforts, don't they? They do. Our poll finds 68 percent of Americans approving of taking in refugees from Afghanistan after screening them for security. Um, Support ranges somewhat by party, but it's a majority across the board. 56% of Republicans support this, rising to 71% of independents, 79% of Democrats. Um, You know, the the news has been filled with stories of Afghan, um, Afghans who supported uh, the U.S. military effort, supported diplomatic roles, trying to get out of the country. Um, In that way, it, it's notable that support is is that high. That's a lot higher than it was um, uh, in in previous years when uh, our polling asked about refugees from the war in Syria. Uh, fewer than half of Americans supported taking refugees at that time. Zooming out a little bit, taking a bit of a broader perspective to use two straight metaphors, the United States a very divided country. Do you still seeing that in this poll? Absolutely. I mean, certainly towards Biden. I mean, one one sign of that is even though he's seen a decline in his approval rating, his disapproval rating among Republicans has moved one percentage point. Republicans already overwhelmingly disapproved of him. They couldn't really go up much. Um, the kind, what I think this poll shows, though, is that Americans are still forming their opinions on Biden. And this has happened with presidents early in those terms. Sometimes they start off positive, sometimes they decline. But the issues do matter. And he's being dragged down by a number of things. Uh, certainly, i got to mention the, the rise of the Delta variant and coronavirus concerns. But this is an issue where Americans just have, have judged Biden pretty harshly. And uh, so he, 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 it's informing their opinion of his overall job rating. And that's an area where, while Americans may be deeply divided, their attitudes on these issues aren't always predictable. In fact, look at Democrats who are generally, oh, I mean, overwhelmingly support Biden's election. A bare majority, 52%, said they both support the withdrawal and approve of Biden's handling of that. That's a very clear admission. Um, uh, I think that um, dem- many Democrats are, are unhappy uh, with how this has gone and how Biden has handled it. And so um, we look for those kind of weak spots within the coalitions to see uh, where a president really is struggling. And that's, that's clearly this issue. And before we let you go, got to ask this. I know it's uh, still quite a ways out, but uh, the campaigns start earlier and earlier every cycle. Is there anything we can read into this poll about next year's midterms? Very little. Uh, other than that, um, Biden's approval rating will be very important for Democrats, but Biden, not Biden's approval rating today. Biden's approval rating next fall will be very important. And so on the one hand, Biden you know, might be grateful that this is not 2022, that this is 2021. As if it were next year, um, you could surely see campaign ads about Afghanistan throughout the fall. 
uh, chastising him for uh, leaving Americans behind as well as Afghan um, uh, you know, supporters. Uh, so there's time for Biden to recover, for Democrats to recover from this situation, um, and also time for people to forget, focus on other things. Uh, we do have this pandemic over our heads, uh, and uh, it's very hard to predict where that's going any given month. So a uh, long time, long time before the election. All right, Scott Clement, polling director for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us. Certainly. When we come back, abortion is effectively banned in Texas after the Supreme Court issues a controversial ruling when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojola. The United States Supreme Court jumped into the fray over abortion. They didn't explicitly strike down Roe versus Wade, but they let stand a Texas law that pretty much bans all abortion procedures, at least after six weeks. That is far sooner than when most women know they are pregnant. Joining me now is ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks. And is this the first blow in an effort by a more conservative court to strike down Roe v. Wade? Well, it's very possible. The fact that five justices refused to join the liberals and Chief Justice Roberts and condemn this Texas law for blatantly violating Roe v. Wade being unconstitutional that causes suspicions. But if you read the order carefully, they're saying we're not ruling on the merits of the abortion decision. There's just no basis for the people who are suing to get an injunction to stop the law from going into effect. So it was a question of standing, right? Standing is part of the deal. And the Texas legislature threw a curve. And here it is. Normally, when you pass a restrictive abortion law, uh, the people who are supposed to enforce it are the governor. And so you may sue the governor in a lawsuit to get the law declared unconstitutional. But this law is not to be enforced by the governor. Instead, it deputizes every Texan, giving them the right to sue any abortion provider if they uh, perform an illegal abortion. And as a result, there's no governor to enjoin. It's all the Supreme Court said in the majority order was, you don't issue an injunction unless the governor or the district attorney is being enjoined. And there is no such injunction in this case. So it sounds like a very legalese way to avoid any challenge to the law. It's not only that, uh, although ultimately there will be a challenge, but it's a way to chill uh, folks who want to be involved in providing uh, abortions, even drivers. An Uber driver could be sued under this law by any Texan, even if the Texan has nothing to do with the proposed abortion. Essentially, the legislature wanted to discourage abortions, but eventually there is going to be a lawsuit uh, that the Supreme Court will have to recognize as ripe, and at that point they'll have to decide, if the lower courts have it, whether to stop this law on its tracks, because it pretty blatantly violates Roe versus Wade. When you talk about standing and you talk about you know deputizing citizens, I, I mean, can states really do that? I, I mean, this is I've never really heard of this before. It's very weird. California has gone through uh, some experiments in deputizing citizens. If you have an unfair business practice, a fraudulent company, California has said, well, anybody in the state who's been victimized is entitled to sue uh, if they, uh, on behalf of the attorney general and therefore get, a spe- get special penalties and get your attorney's fees, even though you normally wouldn't get them. Well, that's what Texas did, only they don't even require anybody being involved in the abortion. You can be a total stranger to a woman's attempt to get an abortion, sue the doctor, and win attorney's fees and penalties of thousands of dollars, because that's the way the Texas legislature wants it. But can that in itself be held up as constitutional? Because they're basically saying someone who is not a part of this case, 
you now have legal standing to uh, prevent this from happening or to bring a lawsuit. Yeah, now, now here's how it can get teed up and, and have proper standing. Let's say you're an abortion clinic, and let's say the uh, you and the Uber driver that brought the woman to the clinic gets sued by Joe Stranger, who just doesn't like abortion. In that case, that suit it would be something where the, the clinic could argue, hey, this is unconstitutional. It violates Roe versus Wade. And if the lower courts don't give relief, then the U.S. Supreme Court at that point would be justified in saying we're going to shut down the law because it looks very much like it's an unconstitutional law. How soon are we expecting a challenge like that? Because I'm guessing the pro-life side and the pro-choice side are really gearing up. Absolutely. You're going to see a challenge immediately. I would say in the next week or so, if not already. You're going to see a lawsuit by somebody who doesn't like abortion. They're going to sue the abortion provider, and they're going to say, aha, the Texas law gives me all sorts of penalties. The provider is going to say, the law is unconstitutional. You shouldn't have the right to do this. And then it will work its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So, yeah, I think it's going to get there quickly. The the worry by the pro-choice people is that five members of the U.S. Supreme Court, when push comes to shove, just may say, well, this isn't such a bad law, but we're going to revisit Roe versus Wade. That's their nightmare scenario. But what about this idea of deputizing citizens, where someone who is no party to the procedure, someone who's six counties away, can file a lawsuit? Don't you have to have some injury in order to seek a legal remedy? You're right. It should it should be a basis for a suit. And to get back to my California example, although originally the legislature said, we want every Californian to be able to sue even if they haven't been injured, the courts came along and said, nice try. You have to be injured personally before you may sue. And so I would think there would be a separate challenge to the Texas law where somebody would file a lawsuit and say, you know what? Joe Stranger up in Austin does not have a right to get involved in my abortion proceeding. And I would think that that would be a lawsuit that would work. So there has been precedent of that nature. Yeah, exactly. The courts do not like it when people sue even though they really haven't been hurt. It gets back to the standing concept you mentioned. As a result, I think the Texas law is likely to be struck down both because it lets strangers to an abortion sue, but also because it violates Roe versus Wade. All right, I'm sure we're going to be talking to you more in the future. Royal Oaks, ABC News legal analyst, thank you so much for your time. You bet, my pleasure. Still to come, states that ban mask mandates in schools might soon be subjected to a discrimination lawsuit. We'll explain when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Masks still controversial, and this time the Department of Education jumping into the fray. They've launched civil rights investigations into five states that have laws banning mask mandates. Now, interestingly enough, not included are the two most controversial states, Texas and Florida. However, Iowa, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Utah are named in this investigation. Joining me now is ABC's Mark Remillard from New York City. And so what's going on here? Yeah, so this comes after uh, shortly after on August 18th, President Biden uh, issued a memorandum to the Secretary of Education uh, requesting that the department look into any action that they can take uh, to prevent these mask mandate bans, the prohibition on mask mandates. And uh, the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights has now sent letters to those five states that you mentioned, Iowa, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Utah, informing them that they are opening an investigation into these. Uh, these are states with uh, prohibitions on mask mandates, on universal mask mandates, and that they're going to be investigating those through uh, the lens of a civil rights issue. And I think this is what's novel or interesting about this is that the Department of Education is looking at this and saying, because you are blocking 
the, uh, the ability for schools to issue mask mandates and therefore use measures to protect kids from exposure to COVID-19. And given that kids with disabilities are at a higher risk of developing severe illness due to COVID-19, uh, this barring the ability to to issue a mask mandate may be therefore preventing kids with disabilities from being able to safely access in-person education. And so as the uh, information from the release from the Department of Education on this said, it's basically uh, that they may be preventing schools. These prohibitions may be preventing schools from meeting their legal obligations not to discriminate based on disability uh, and to provide equal educational opportunities. Well, if if, if kids with disabilities, particularly certain ones that put them at risk of higher exposure or higher uh, risk of severe illness to COVID-19, you might not be of uh, you might be violating these these policies and rules. So we also mentioned off the top that the two most controversial states that have implemented such bans on mask mandates, Texas and Florida, are not included. Why is that? Yeah. So Florida, Texas, uh, Alabama, uh, excuse me, Arkansas and Arizona are not included on this. That's it's specifically mentioned in this release uh, information from the department of education saying that the reason those states are not included in this are is because there are already ongoing court restrictions, injunctions, or other court cases that are playing out. Uh, the department said, though, that it will monitor those situations, and if things change or if um, those injunctions go away, and so therefore the states are able to enforce these mask mandate prohibitions again, the Department of Education says it will step in and likely investigate them in the same manner they're investigating these other states. So basically saying because there's already action ongoing that's preventing those states from enforcing the mandates as they currently sit, we're not investigating them. But if something changes, we stand ready to do that in the future. But how much can the Department of Education really do? Because education is usually left up to the states, if not the local districts. That's true, but you can't violate uh, the civil rights and, and disability acts and things like that. So if the uh, Department of Education can investigate these departments or excuse me these um policies at the state level these laws that prohibit mask mandates and show perhaps to a court that these are discriminatory in a way well then the court might toss out those laws and so i think that that's what the education uh department is looking to do here they also might be looking to just send a message i mean that's part of it too might just be saying we're gonna we're gonna do everything we can to fight these things, and we'll even look at it from a civil rights lens as we have to, um, because as I mentioned, uh, Biden had d- directed the Secretary of Education to look into any means that he can take legally to to uh, uh, you know look at these things and see if they can uh, get around them essentially or, or or stop them from being enforced. And so that's uh, seems to be where this is going. But if there's a civil rights violation, that could drastically change the abilities for those laws to exist. All right, ABC's Mark Remillard, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Still to come, the feds investigate McDonald's. But why? When the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finally on the Como Politicast, the feds are looking into McFlurries. And yes, you heard that right. We're talking about that tasty treat at McDonald's, and there are conspiracy theories all over the place. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field, who covers Washington, D.C. for us. And, you know, we've talked to you about so many different things when it comes to the world of politics, but 
McFlurries and conspiracy theories? What's going on? We have never had a subject this tasty here. We are going to get to the <laughs> bottom of that shamrock shake. But first, let me take you down memory lane for when we first heard about the magical McFlurry. What do you get when you blend tempting candy or cookie toppings with creamy soft serve ice cream? Presenting McDonald's new McFlurry. Mm. Did somebody say McDonald's? Did somebody say the machine's broken? Likely, when you're in the drive-thru and you're asking for anything that has ice cream-based dessert at McDonald's, whether it's a shake or a cone or a sundae with or without nuts or the McFlurry, as you just heard. Now you'd think, well, gee, there's... Why don't they just get new machines? Well, that's a good question. I don't know why they don't. But we're told that the same machines that make those ice cream treats at McDonald's are also the ones you'd find at Wendy's or Chick-fil-A or In-N-Out Burger. And they don't seem to have these problems. But somehow McDonald's does. And apparently the owner-operators have complained to the Federal Trade Commission here in Washington, which is where I come in because that's what I cover here in D.C., Uh, Although I'm happy to drink a McFlurry or any of those other (laughs) delicious tasting drinks if someone wants to offer one up. Uh, But apparently the Federal Trade Commission is looking into it. Now, we call them. They are not commenting on it, although the Wall Street Journal has gotten access to some internal documents that indicate that they are indeed investigating this because it's costing McDonald's franchisees a whole lot of money. Apparently, they make 60% of their dessert money off of these ice cream machines. And when they're not working, they're not making money. So even though you and I are complaining about it, um, I don't think the FTC is going to listen to us, but they may listen to a group as deep-pocketed as the franchisee owners of McDonald's and trying to figure out what's going on. Now, I can tell you uh, from the research we've done that when they say the machine's broken, often it is not. What is happening is that the machine is going through this four-hour cleaning process Now, you think, why are they doing it during the day? Why don't they do it overnight? Well, apparently, they are doing it overnight, and then it's automated, and basically, it empties out all the ice cream. It steam cleans the inside to a temperature that kills any germs, so you and I don't get sick from the next ice cream cone. And then everything's supposed to be good. It's it's supposed to say, hey, things work fine, and let's start making some more ice cream. But it turns out that it fails quite often, And so they have to run it again, which is why in the middle of the day, you're getting those, the machines not working things. And if it fails a couple of times, they have to call in the technician, which according to some franchisees, they have signed agreements with the mothership of McDonald's saying, we're only going to get it fixed by these particular technicians. And that's expensive and sometimes they're not available. So the bottom line is you're going McFlurry-less some days has anyone looked into why these particular machines are breaking down so much is it a design flaw or you know like you said why not replace them well the weirder thing is that they seem to be the same machines that as i mentioned some other fast food national chains also have and they're not having those problems now maybe the rules are different at those places maybe they just get some scalding hot water and pour the thing in rinse it out and test it and say okay everything's good to go and They don't use the automation. I don't know what the answer to that is, but 
when you talk to folks at those other fast food chains, they just kind of laugh and go, yeah, that's McDonald's problem, not ours. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as far as the investigation, what can the federal government hope to do here? Because you say it's an FTC well, investigation. It, it, so. could be an anti it could be antitrust investigation. Again, I don't know what they're looking at here, but, you know, maybe the contracts are such that uh, they're too uh, restrictive for these owner-operators and they should have more uh, leeway. Uh, maybe the company is that makes the machines, there may be something awry there. I don't know what the details are, but that's what the FTC is doing the investigation into. There is a website. If you really are jonesing for that McFlurry or that Shamrock Shake come St. Patrick's Day, and your local McDonald's machine isn't working, well, you are in luck. You pull your car off to the side of the road. Look up McBroken is the website that tracks. <laughs> yes, there is a website for this that tracks if those machines are working or not, and where you can go to zip on over, get into the drive-through line, and pay your money and get your shake. And 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 we're going to do this, you know, live while we're doing the podcast here. I, I we have a McDonald's that's right across the street from us uh, here at Como Plaza. I'm 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 looking out the window at my desk here. I I see the McDonald's on Fifth Avenue, and according to McBroken.com. The machine is working, and they checked 37 minutes ago, so I can get my McFlurry for lunch. Lucky you. <laughs> wow, people are putting a lot of effort into this frozen treat. It is good. I've had one. <laughs> Listen, you deserve a break today, as McDonald said, but, you know, if it's not working, have it your way and go to their competition. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people discover the program. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and many, many more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelip. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.